0: every phone call we had at least once if not three or four times david you got to keep doing what you're doing your young men need what you have to offer them need to keep doing what you're doing they're not getting it anywhere else and he's the man that made me realize my calling and follow my calling and it is just that the day i walk off the court for the last time will be hard for me that's kind of who i am you've mentioned you know i've been blessed to have great kids and like you mentioned we've had some great success by traditional standards. My hope and prayer is my true measure of success is the young, young men that we put out in the community and their lives and their kids' lives. That's, that's the impact coaches need to have.
1: The Holding Court Podcast is powered by Fundraising University Ohio. Fundraising University Ohio offers a variety of fundraising efforts that help basketball teams run profitable, effective, and fast-paced fundraisers designed to raise the most money in the shortest amount of time to reach their fundraising goals. Fundraising University Ohio is locally owned and operated, and with their six-step blitz system, will help your team maximize profits. As a former basketball coach himself, Brent Maxwell will sit down and help you pick, plan, strategize, and execute your fundraiser, which will allow you as a coach to devote more time to the other aspects of your program. If you're looking to take your fundraising efforts to the next level, contact Brent Maxwell at bmaxwell at fundraisingu.net or 740-501-8946 to learn more welcome to holding court presented by the ohio high school basketball coaches association join hosts adam hall and walt serato as they sit down with some of the biggest names in ohio high school basketball and beyond this show and all of our shows are available to listen to completely free anywhere that you can find podcasts we hope you enjoy the podcast let's get to it
2: hello it's adam hall here with my co-host walt serato And we are excited to be joined by David Close, Head Boys Basketball Coach at Stowe Monroe Falls High School. Coach, thank you for joining us and welcome to the Holding Court Podcast.
0: Thanks. Great to be here. I appreciate uh, you uh, spending some time with me, Adam Walt. Uh, The OHSBCA is a great organization. Uh, It does a tremendous job of supporting, backing our coaches and our kids and the, the great game of basketball here in Ohio. Thankful to be a part of it and thankful to be here today. Coach, thank you.
2: And uh, before we get started talking about your background, uh, we just finished an event, uh, Midwest Live, here a couple weeks ago, and I know your team participated in it. So just your thoughts and reactions to the event.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're fortunate to be in last year's and this year's event, you know, for an an event that's in its infancy, essentially amazing how well organized it is, the level of competition, 10 courts going on at a time. Um, There were no timing problems, very organized. Everyone knew where they're supposed to be. It's amazing. You can run 120 schools through an event like that in 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 a short amount of time, have that many college coaches present, you know, AAU is kind of a, a necessary thing to get, to get kids recruited, but this is, this is a time now we finally can get our kids to have coaches see them play on their own high school team <laughs> instead of just an AAU situation. So uh, I think it's a great event. It's, a, it's great for college coaches, uh, and it's certainly great for high school kids. Okay, Coach, let's go backwards here a little bit. Uh, It's not too often that you get a coach
3: who's able to say they follow the same path as Chris Holtman and John Grossi did to get into the, the coaching profession. But that was you. You did just that. Like Coach Holtman and Coach Grossi, you played at Taylor University under Hall of Fame coach Paul Patterson. And after graduating in 1980, you returned to Taylor University as an assistant coach under Coach Patterson. What led to your decision to return to Taylor University as an assistant? And at that point in your life... Were you strongly considering staying in the college
0: game? That's that's a great question, and I could talk about Coach Paul Patterson all day long. Incredible human being, incredibly impactful in my life, uh, and every young man that's gone through that program. Uh, he's just an amazing human being, great basketball coach, great coach of life. Patterson came to Taylor in 1979. That was my senior year, uh, and I, w- I was never a stellar basketball player by any stretch. He came to Taylor, and I remember reading an article in a local paper when they when Taylor hired him. He made a comment in there, and I wasn't quite sure what to think, but he said, I, I want to work with young men that want to go into the coaching profession. And I thought to myself, hey, that's that's cool. That's great, but how do you know how many of your guys will end up doing that, you know? You know? So, I kind of was curious how that would play out, but he he was a very challenging coach, and at the same time in my life and on a personal level, a very close friend of mine, college classmate of mine, had had just died of cancer. So I was at a place in my life where I was asking myself a lot of questions, maybe for the first time in my life. It's first time that somebody you know it, that was a friend my age you know, had, had passed. So the the whole. You know, I, I, I'm a Christian. I was a Christian university. Where, you know, where does competitive athletics fit in the in the in in the world of of a Christian? And so I, I was kind of having some doubts, and and I was working hard and all that kind of thing. But my 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 head and my heart weren't fully in it, and I kind of played myself into a hole. And I wrestled with that for a while, and I, I finally kind of stumbled across this answer. Um, there's a scripture in the Bible that says, whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. And I realized that didn't have an asterisk. So that included basketball. Um, and it included basketball, not just if you are all league or a starting or second team, or or if you like the coach, the coach likes you, or your teammates like you, it's all the time. And that really changed when I came, you know, it took a long while to wrestle with that. When I came to that in my life, that I'm going to just do this the fullest I can and kind of just trust the Lord with the results and I was kind of a I became a, I was always working on but I became a different player I competed a lot harder I pushed the kids ahead of me I pushed the younger kids behind me very vocal on the bench very vocal in locker rooms and my goal was to make this team better any way I could even though the result did, wasn't I didn't really get to play a lot it didn't change anything but it did change you know my perspective on things as the year wound down coach Patterson came up to me he goes hey Dave have you ever thought about you know, getting into the coaching profession? I go, coach, man, I've been thinking about that my whole life. But right now, because of my friend having just passed, I'm probably leaning to getting into ministry. And then he asked me two life's, life-changing questions right, right there on the basketball floor, right before practice started. He goes, uh, he goes, who do you think gave you those desires to coach? And, and of course, the hidden answer was God. And the, the second question was, what makes you think coaching isn't a ministry? And then a, a short while after that, while the season was still going on, he offered me a, a coaching position for the next year. So that's kind of how it all started for me. So he was very impactful to me. When when Coach retired, we had a uh, – you mentioned uh, – Chris Holtman and and John Gross, very good friends of mine, having been from that same coaching tree. You know, we had a a banquet to honor Coach Patterson, and the room was filled with alumni that spanned 34 years. And it was an open mic, and I went up and I I said some things. And one of the things I said, I, I mentioned that article in the newspaper about him wanting to work with young men that wanted to coach. And I expected... A positive answer here, but not quite the answer I got. So I asked, "If you're here and you played for Coach Patterson, how many of you coached at any level—pro, college, high school, youth—and I'm telling you, every hand went up. And then I and then I followed that up with, "How many of you, in the middle of a practice or game, has said something and stopped and said to yourself?" Man, I sound just like Coach Patterson, and every hand went up again. So when he said that back in 1979, I, I want to work with young men that want to become a coach. I was the first, and um, and he he made a a career of discipling young men that had played for him and giving them their first coaching opportunity. So that was that was very very neat uh, situation for me. Very thankful for that opportunity. Uh, but a neat thing in that environment, when you have a program like that, when you're in a room with 34 years of of, ki- of people, you know, Coach Panos was very challenging. He pushed people really hard. It was very, you know, he took every day seriously and, and you were pushed to be your best every drill all day every day conditioning practice games so when you're surrounded with guys 34 years apart you're still a family it's just like you played with those same guys because you know what each guy went through and you know how hard it was you know the success you achieved because of it so it's kind of like fraternity you know they're almost like your own teammates I sat with different guys I knew all their names and uh but I didn't know them until those moments um but that's real blessing and I, and I think uh, I'm blessed that I think we've had an opportunity to do here at Stowe as well. We have get-togethers. We'll sit around the table, whether it's a a bunch of guys came down when the OHSBCA honored me with the Paul Wark Award. I was very honored to get that. But we had a bunch of alumni came, sit around a table after the, that presentation, and they were 20 years apart, and they were like brothers. And uh, that's gratifying to me. Now, to go back to the you know the, the college coaching thing, I think I really planned on staying in college coaching when it first started. Um, I, I, you know, I I really enjoyed working with Patterson. And then right after that, I got a job with Jim McDonald at Kent State University. And he was a, a great coach and a great human being as well. I was really blessed to have a chance to work with him. But he said something to me once. We were We used to jog at lunchtime. We'd go jog five miles, the whole staff, sometimes all of us, sometimes a couple of us, just he and I on a jog one day. And he goes, David frustrates me when all these high school coaches that call me, they want to get into college coaching. He goes, to me, coaching is coaching. It doesn't matter what level you take, what you have and you develop it to its fullest. Don't get hung up on where you're at. So that was kind of life changing for me as well. Cause I kind of thought to myself that, you know what, I'm not just going to climb a ladder to be climbing it. You know, I, I, I'm going to pursue you know, what that next job is. But if I ever feel like this is where I'm supposed to be, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to climb the ladder for ladder's sake. And uh, that was an impactful statement for
2: for me as well. So coach, before we move on, I want to address something you said. You talked about your faith and I'm just curious, how have you been able to incorporate your faith uh, into your basketball program at Stowe and the young men uh, that you've had the opportunity to coach?
0: Yeah, it's a little tricky as a, as a public educator, I, I, I guess. To me, again, th- this is a calling for me, and I, I guess there, I guess there are two things I could share that I, I will share um, with my teams on occasion, and I'll share them at banquets, and I'll present these as you know when I anytime I go to use like scripture. As a coach, uh, I'll encompass it this way. I'll say we all have uh, sources of wisdom that we lean on, whether it's a coach, uh, a, pr- a former president, a leader, all kinds of sources of wisdom that we can quote. Every once in a while, a source of wisdom that I will quote is scripture. And, and there's two points to the, kind of define for me why I coach. And one of them is the parable of the talents, which in summation says, um, the Lord's giving given you some talents, um, although in that time it was money. That's what it meant at the scriptural time, but he's given us real, real talents, and it's our job and our responsibility to develop those to their fullest. Whether you're given a lot of ability or a little ability, the challenge is the same. Develop what you have to the fullest. So that's You know, that means you're for your best player, your 13th player. Your job is the same to become the best you can possibly be. The other point of scripture that I'll reference is part of the scripture where it talks about parts of the body um, acting as one. The head cannot say to the foot that I do not need you. All the parts are necessary. Some are a little more glamorous and um, some are more get more praise, if you will. But all parts are necessary for the body to function. Again, it goes back to all of our parts and roles are important. Whether you're the best man or the or, or the thirteenth man on your roster, whatever that is, but and I'll, I'll usually point out something like this: you don't think much of your toe as a human being until you stub it, and then all of a sudden you can't do very much. You know, you can't walk very well. You you can't jump. You can't. It, it 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 consumes you that your foot is killing you right now. But those are really the two hopefully lessons. Whether you you know have God involved in that discussion or we not have God, there's still great. Uh, learning points as far as how to function as a team, whether you're on a basketball court or in, in the real world. So coach,
3: going back through your resume here a little bit, you're a two-year stint at Taylor. After that, you spent two years as an assistant coach at Kent State University, and then one year as the JV slash varsity assistant coach at Maple Heights High School. Before you were being named the head coach at Painesville Riverside in 1985. When you were hired at Riverside, the story goes that your athletic director indicated to you that you would take a couple years for your team to be competitive. In year one, you go 20-3 and and you won the school's first ever league and sectional title. In year three in the job, you tack on another league title and won 17-5. and So one of two things happened. Either that AD knew nothing about basketball and wasn't a very good talent evaluator, or there are some things that you did and put in place that allowed your team to experience that immediate success upon your arrival.
0: Before I get into that, you mentioned you know, the, the three coaching stops before that. I'm incredibly blessed that at Taylor, I got a, I worked for a guy in his first years of putting a program together. Jim McDonald, I was his GA his first year of putting his program together. And at Maple Heights, Biff Lloyd is kind of a legend here in Northeast Ohio. It was his first as a head coach at Maple Heights. So I, I was on the ground floor. I think it's different if you're a new coach coming to a, an assistant that's up and running. But how you got there is so critical. I was really blessed to have been on the ground floor of three programs, you know, who all three raised the level of their program as I kind of sat and watched and learned. So what a, what a great opportunity for me there. You know, the Riverside situation, first of all, the AD was the former coach who resigned to become the AD. I don't want to put him down because he's a good coach. I just think the timing was good. The timing was right. Um if I would think back to Patterson, I, he, he would say I th- you'd have to have some ground floor people that are just going to buy in and do whatever you want them to do. And when I, when I went to Riverside, I had a core of kids. I, I lived in Stowe when I got the Riverside job. It was, it was an hour drive each way. And I, I drove an hour each way and opened the gym and three guys showed up and we played two on two. But th- those guys were the core. And that, that group eventually grew. And they bought into what we're doing. They bought into playing hard. They bought into incredibly high expectations. I remember that first year we were scrimmaging at Menor, which is about three or four times our size. And by their standards, we were doing great against them, but I, but I was like never buying it. I was always wanting us to get better. I was challenging them and, you know, hey, there's a rebound we should have had. There was some confusion. Hey, coach, we're doing great. And I, and I was telling them, that, you know, we got to get better. But they bought into that. They trusted me. They trusted the process, and, and, and they got better. So it's more of a timing thing, and that they bought into me. That's no indictment on a previous coach. It, it just clicked, and they were, they were hungry to maybe to have a guy like me, I guess.
2: So, Coach, the other day I was listening to Miles Simon of the South Bay Lakers talk about the best investment he has made in his career as a coach. He stated that leaving the Los Angeles Lakers as an assistant coach And taking the head coaching job with the Lakers G League affiliate was the best investment he had made as a coach. He stated that it has allowed him to become a much better coach as he has taken on head coaching duties. And as an assistant coach, he didn't have those same opportunities. So in your situation, you could have remained as an assistant and waited for a better job to come open but instead you took a job in which there was a lot of uncertainty surrounding it. How valuable was that experience at Riverside and how do you feel it set you up to have the hall of fame career that you have had at Stowe?
0: It's interesting because, you know, I, the the sentiments you expressed were very strong when I left Taylor At, at Taylor. We give, we have the kids give senior speeches and, and those are all my friends. You know, I, um, I played with most of them and I was my second year as a coach there. And, uh, I mean, everyone's in tears, crying. And uh, I thought, man, this is what it's all about. Why would I want to go anywhere else? And then I ended up getting a job with Jim McDonald. Uh, when I applied, Kent State didn't even have a head coach. <laughs> so I left my resume out at the AD's office. I came over spring break. I was living in Stowe then, my parents did, and ended up getting an interview later on. Uh, actually, when I dropped off my resume, he, he, they had just hired him. He was on campus, so I spoke to him that day. But anyways, I I was I guess I was never, I was always anxious to try to do this on my own. I think I learned with with three great coaches and three great programs. And I was anxious to try to implement these myself. I was 24 years old applying for head coaching jobs in Indiana. And I was 26 and 27, you know, applying after I left Kent State. You know, I I was fortunate at Riverside. I remember I I heard of that opening three different times. And this is pre-internet, you know, so how do you, you know, it was word of mouth and things like that. So Two different people told me about it, but it was a health teaching job, so it didn't apply. Then an assistant coach at Kent State says, hey, Dave, they're looking – at Riverside, I go, yeah, but it's, they're looking for a health teacher. So I go after three times, I'm going to send it in. Well, it turns out they had asked their health teacher to be a, to become a math teacher to open up a health job for the new basketball coach. So they would rather have a math teacher did it than tell anybody. Within a week of sending a letter, I was offered that job. But you know, I, I guess I was really anxious to go out on my own. I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't real fearful. That was like the second job I was offered as a, as a young coach. The first one I thought could have been a a career ender. They told me that they were 0 and 19 the year before, 0 and 20, and they expect to be worse before they get better. I'm, that that was a they're saying that right in the interview. So I don't think I would I would want that one. But yeah, I I, I just felt I, I felt confident in the process that I had learned, and I just wanted to go try it by myself. So you have
3: the three years at Riverside, and maybe in the eyes of some outsiders, might have overachieved. The opportunity comes knocking to return home to your alma mater. Stowe-Monroe Falls High School. Take us through that decision because it seemed as though you had a good thing going at Riverside. And based on some conversations we've had prior to the podcast, Stowe was not the program that it currently is today. Uh, in fact, the program only had two sectional titles to its name. And the last time the program played in a district championship game was some 40 years earlier in 1948.
0: Yeah, I loved Riverside. My wife and I, my wife was teaching up there. We were married the year I took the, the Riverside job. We moved up there, she got a, a job uh, teaching and coaching at Fairport Harbor, a nearby school. And be be honest, with you we were looking to start our family. We've been married three years, and so start our family, we we're going to build a house. We we're going to buy a house somewhere. We've been renting, and whether that's Riverside or somewhere else. So, Stowe job opened up, and a friend of mine called me before it actually opened, said it was going to open. And again, I'm a Stowe alum. I'm the youngest of three boys in my family, uh, so I, I watched both my brothers play basketball at Stowe and uh, so from third grade on I hardly ever miss, I don't think I ever missed a game my, my brother was uh, Akron Beacon Journal five county player of the year he played at the University of Florida and uh, so he was my hero growing up so in the back of my mind I'd hope someday to go back to Stowe so when that opened up it was pretty hard for me not to pursue it I was considered to be a long shot from insiders to get the job because again I was just 30 years old and there were some big names involved uh, but I was blessed to get that job you mentioned that their program was was strong they had In 1985, Stowe had gone undefeated. They had Dave Jamerson, who was, uh, uh, led the nation at scoring at Ohio University, averaged 33 a game at Stowe. Uh, they had a seven-footer on that team that went to Davidson. You know, Dave Jamerson made it to the NBA. They had other guys that ended up playing college basketball, and they lost in a district tournament. So that, for the first time in my life, I've always put tremendous pressure on myself to to succeed and do well, probably the first time in my life where those expectations were were met or equaled from the outside you because know, they had they'd had good uh regular season success they'd run league titles uh they were craving some tournament success, so you know Again, when I when I came to Stowe, I had some, again a great core of guys that completely—you got to have those cornerstone guys—and um, that completely bought into what we were doing. You know, I'm sure there are days they thought I was a little nuts with the expectations, but you know, the first year we made it to the district final for the first time in 40 years, and the next year we made it to the final four. Um, and you know, those are those are a group of kids that we still talk about that.
2: Yeah, coach. So let's take some time here and talk about those early years at Stowe. You know, you were. We talked about already, you're taking over a program that historically had not experienced much success, especially in the tournament. But in your first six years, you were able to reach the state final four, not once, but twice in 1990 and 1993. Your teams in 93 and 94 uh, were ranked nationally in the top 10 by USA Today. Obviously, you had some special players such as Kevin Kovac, who was named the Ohio Division One Player of the Year in 1993. Jeff Byrne, who won the same award the year after and was a junior on that team in 93, and others such as Andy Norman, Brian Higley, uh, and Nate Mears, to name a few. What I want to know is how were you able to elevate that program so quickly to have that tournament success that for so long had eluded Stowe? And did you follow the same blueprint you did at Riverside, or were there things you did differently when taking over at Stowe?
0: Yeah, I, I think we as coaches need to have a core set of values that are non-negotiables. And those don't necessarily reflect his style of play, just commitments to how you're going to act as a team. So that blueprint doesn't change one school to the next too much you're gonna you're gonna try the same things, this, the same basketball concepts you know developing toughness, uh, raising expectations preparation fundamentals you know all those things are can be cliche but you really got to commit to to do those best you can you know the the neat thing you I, I, you mentioned the two teams ranked in the country it's a little surreal every Tuesday morning being able to pick up a USA today and read about your your high school basketball team and you know from Stowe Ohio Who's ever heard of Stowe, Ohio before? But those were great teams. But um, you know, the blueprint was kind of the same. The neat, neat things about you mentioned the two teams that went to Columbus, 1990. You know, the the core values were we're going to start. We're going to start with, and, and, and to this day, start with you know pretty tough man-to-man defense and fundamental team-oriented high percentage offense. And what that looked like in 1990 is a team that played the game in the 50s. I mean. We lost the district semi or uh, the state semifinal, forty-nine to forty-seven, and had a shot rim out at the buzzer. Or we're playing for a state title. They're playing the game in fifties. In nineteen ninety-three, we averaged ninety-three points a game. Ninety-four. We had a team score one hundred and thirty-five in a game and fifty in one quarter. But the tenants didn't didn't change. You still start with man-to-man defense. It looked differently. The 90 team played more of a what you would call now pack line, protect the paint, pressure the ball, be in help stance. In 93, we did full court run and jump on makes and misses from the opening tip. And um, it was a fun style play. But you got to have 10. We rotated kids 10 in and 10 out. I mean, five in and five out, played 10 kids. Uh, the interesting thing is, we graduated four guys from the '93 team that were starters, two All-State guards. They were 19 and one and made it to the Final Four in 1994. That they replaced those guys and they ran the table, went undefeated, and stubbed our toe in the regionals. But two great teams. That again, the tenants, the style of play looks different, but the but the core beliefs did not change.
3: Yeah, so, Coach, one of the things I, I've respected a lot about your program, you know, watching from a distance, is you're not afraid of some competition. Uh, over the years, your teams have played an elite level of competition, not only here just in Ohio, but at the national level as well. The list of individual players who you've had to game plan against during your career at Stowe is pretty impressive. Uh, if my math's right, I believe 16 NBA draft picks and a number of other players that have gone on, you know, to play it at, at high major colleges, um, end up in the G League or playing overseas once their college days are over. Talk us through that thought process when it comes to building a schedule and getting your teams ready, ultimately for playing in March.
0: Well, that, that's part of raising the bar. So if you're raising your expectations with your kids, that's that's reflected on how you play. It's Like on Riverside, we're going scrim- to We're going to scrimmage Mentor. You know, at Stowe every year we try to scrimmage the best. Pe- every year right now we scrimmage uh, Mentor, St. Ed's, Camp McKinley. You know, we travel to Columbus and try to scrimmage scrimmage the best people down in Columbus, and we we, we want to fill our our non-league schedule, like you mentioned some of our elite teams. This past season, we had a, a really, really special team. They went 24-3, and and uh, they'd won a, a 16 games in a row at the end and stubbed our toe in the regionals. But the, the, all the same tenants from those 90 teams were there with these guys. Uh, they, they loved each other. They played together well. Um, but going back to the schedule, yeah, we, we, we tried to – I remember when it came to Stowe, the, the league was like cut in half. There were three really good teams. Barberton was new in the league, and, of course, they were elite in basketball all the time. Cuyahoga Falls in that era was really good. They had Robbie Eggers, who went to Indiana. Um, Landon Hackham was an all-league guy at Miami, Ohio. Scott Meach was an All-American at Wooster. They were really good every year. Kent was really good every year. In fact, the year we went to Columbus, we were third in the league. And the team that was fourth in the league was Barberton, and they were ranked number one in Ohio the next year. That's how good the league was. But we we tried to amp up our schedule. We always played back in those days the best teams in Akron. I remember one year we added, in, in one year, we added McKinley, Warren Western Reserve, which is now part of Warren Harding, and Euclid. You know, those first two teams were state top 10 teams every year, and Euclid was very good back in that day as well. Even to the point where my principal, who was a basketball guy himself, a former ca- coach, questioned if we should be doing that. But I think you got to test yourself. Um, and going back to what you mentioned, the, the competition that the out-of-state competition, those teams in the nineties, those three teams that you mentioned, teams that later played for Stowe reaped the benefits of that. You know, we've been on the national news, so. We were getting invited. We got to play in the beach ball classic. Um, we got to play in a t- stop DWI tournament in Big Intum, New York. Uh, we got invited to play in the coaxial classic three times, which is which really cool thing. It was in Columbus in a couple of years. Then they moved it down to Athens one year. They paired an Ohio team with an out-of-state team every year. So we played four teams ranked first in the country and one team ranked second in the country by being involved in some of those things. So, I, I think that's how you get better. You got to raise the bar. Now, were we going to beat like Damatha? You know, probably not, but you want to find out what it takes to compete against them. And uh, those are great experiences for our kids. I'm sure those guys still talk about those games. I know they do.
2: So, coach, give us your top five players and teams you faced in your career.
0: <laughs> oh, that's that's interesting. Again, it's all in that stretch, um, and I'm going to answer answer those questions jointly because the best players were on those best teams, and it's hard. Again, we played four teams that were ranked first in the country, and one that was ranked second. So that's my top five. But I'm not sure that team was that was ranked second wasn't the best. But we'll, um, you know, of course, we scrimmaged we scrimmaged Saint V all four years um, that LeBron was there. And they were a number one team their senior year in the country. So, of course, that, that was a, a, some great competition. I, I, I think I got to put LeBron on that list of some of the best people we've played against. Um, we went on to the Beach Ball Classic. We opened up with Dematha, which is a perennial national power. Uh, Coach Morgan Wooten was still coaching at that time. They had Book and Wings that played in the McDonald's game, Keith Bogans and Joe Forte. And both made it to the NDA. So they were pretty good. And they had a 6'11 guy inside that was pretty good, too. Uh, we played Oak Hill Academy in the Coax. They were ranked uh, first in the country. They had a guy named Ron Mercer, I think, played at Kentucky. And Celtics was in the NDA. Funny story there is that that was before the days of Huddle. And we played on. We played them on a Saturday. We had a game on Friday night. And and call, I think Moeller had played them. And they sent me a VHS t- tape. <laughs> and we watched it, and we chartered a bus to go down to the Coaxial Classic in Columbus. So we we actually watched the game on the way down. And uh, as I'm watching, they had two like six ten kids inside, and 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 Mercer again, I didn't know who Ron Mercer was. And again, there's no internet, uh, all that kind of stuff. He's like slashing to the basket, slash. So I so we watched the game till so my my game my game prep talk is Hey guys, this guy only drives to the basket." Let's back off of him and, and make him beat us from the outside, which he gladly did. Wasn't a very good scouting report, but um, again, that was pre-huddle days. But he, was, he made it to the NBA. So that was um, Ron Mercer with uh, Oak Hill Academy. St. John's Prospect Hall out of Maryland. They were number one. We played them in a coaxial game. Uh, they had Damian Wilkins, who was in the NBA. And I think the team that was ranked number two, we played at the stop DWI Holiday Classic in Binghamton, New York. Price the King, New York, they were ranked second, but they had three first-round draft picks. A guy named Lamar Odom, I'm sure we've all heard of, Speedy Claxton, and Eric Barkley were the guards, and they had a power forward uh, that looked that played like Charles Barkley, so they were very good. So again, those are opportunities for our kids that give them memories of, of a lifetime. So coach, uh,
3: yeah, not too bad of a competition there spanning some decades of NBA players some some impressive names you rattled off there so let, let's talk about coaching kids in, in today's world 2023 you know as you, as you look back over your coaching career what ways do you feel kids have changed and what adjustments have you had to make in your coaching style or your approach to get the most out of your players
0: yeah I, I think I have I have adjusted my coaching style but I, I want to start off with I cringe when I hear that When someone says coaches or kids are different these days, I want to ask, is that a compliment? When when somebody says about kids, kids are different and they're talking about in a coaching environment, kids are different these days. Are we complimenting today's kids? That's an insult. If I were today's kids and someone, because what you're saying is they're soft. If I was today's kids, that would tick me off. I would say, I'm going to show you that kids haven't changed. So I, I'd like to think, and, I, and I've said this in our gym, kids haven't changed. They're going to work their butt off every day. They're going to work hard. They're going to they're going to get after it, and we're going we're going to work you hard. Now I have adjusted. I you know I was an incredibly intense coach in my earlier years, and, and the, the alumni that come back would say I'm anything but that. You know we coach our kids high, hard. Uh, we we push them. You know I I think if you know Coach Patterson had a quote, good is hard. Hard is good. If you're going to be good at something, that's not easy. You ain't going to stroll in the gym and beat anybody. That's hard work. And hard is good. In this day and age, people got to realize if you're doing something hard, that's good for you. So that's how you grow. That's how you get better as a human being is to, is to take difficult, challenging tasks. And maybe that's Coach Close in practice today because where are they getting at anywhere else? So, you know, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm certainly a, a lot less intense than I was. And I, I will say the key to the whole thing, being able to coach kids hard, they got to know you love them. They absolutely got to know you love them. And my, I think my kids know that. I mean, I tell them that all the time and I, I, I try different ways to show them that as well. And the feedback I have, especially when they come back years later, is that, that they do love me. And, and you know, so sure you, you, you don't please everybody in our business, but yeah, I, I, I think you do have to change. You got you to convince kids uh, that, you, that you love them. Um, and that takes some salesmanship a little bit. And, but, you, but you can't be fake either. You got to really, truly love them. These kids are our sons while they're in your program. And so I, I guess that's kind of a, a double edged answer there. But that I feel pretty strongly that today's kids should be a little insulted when people want to say that all the time. You know, kids are different. and There's certainly a lot more distractions in their life. But we we should want our kids to be able to handle difficult tasks and challenges and, and strive to be the best they can be. That's that's what's preparing for the rest of their lives.
2: So, Coach, how have you handled the multi-sport situation at Stowe? I know you're a bigger school and might not share as many athletes as some of the smaller schools across the state, but I am sure you still have to deal with this situation from time to time. How do you work with your players that participate in multiple sports? And more importantly, how do you work with the coaches of those other sports to ensure that kids have the opportunity to take full advantage of their high school athletic careers?
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, You know, I'm blessed at Stowe. You know, we do have a a decent number. It varies year to year of kids that do uh, multiple sports. What's a dinosaur these days are kids at a school like this that do three sports. So we actually have two in our program right now that do three sports. That's a challenge, but I'm blessed that I have coaches here, and have had coaches over the years that are willing to understand that. Uh, I think the biggest challenge is like is months of June and July, you know, because we're all out of season. So we try, we try to coordinate, you know, particularly like, you know, we'll have soccer and, and football guys who try to coordinate best we can to make it where kids can do both activities and not have conflicts. You know, you know the football coach and I will share schedules with each other and, and try to kids give kids opportunity, you know, to do all the things they want to do in high school. I'm, I'm a big fan of multiple sport athletes. I'm, my first year at Stowe, one of those kids that took us to Columbus, a 6'5 kid, um, six, Scott Fasick was his name, tough nose kid. He's being recruited by, he's a, going into his junior year as a sophomore, He's has Recruited by Division I football player teams for uh, as a defensive end and tight end combination guy, just a beast. And he kind of wanted me to talk him out of playing football. And I I told him two things. I go, I go, number one, the the rest of your life is a long time to be mad about not playing football. You've played with these guys, you know, all your lives. And the second thing is, if you want to not play football, you're not going to blame it on me. It's not going to be my fault. (laughs) You got to look your football teammates in, in, in the eye and say, hey, this was my decision to focus on basketball because he truly wanted to play basketball. Now, he did stop playing football, but it wasn't because of me. I mean, he did go play college basketball. But like most people tell you, he probably would have been a, a, a Division One football player. And even just a, just a couple of years ago, I had a couple of sophomores saying, ah, we're not going to play football next year. And I gave him the same speech. I go, you guys need to sit at your 20-year reunion with the guys you played football with for seven years and tell football stories. And then you tell, sit with your basketball guys and tell those. So, again, the rest of your life a long time to be mad at, at a decision you made back when you were in high school. So I think you got to, you got to work with kids. And another thing is every once in a while, kids going to choose a sport. Like, you know, I had administrator, you know, last year we were 24 and three the year before this year, we had all those kids basically were were playing varsity minutes a year earlier. And we won eight out of our last nine, had some huge upsets, got to the district final and gave green a great game until we ran out of gas. Um, But before that we were eight and nine. And before we ran off those eight straight and an administrator asked me, well, I understand you won eight in a row. What happened before that? And what happened before that was two years earlier, our best two players were sophomores. We had a first-team All-League player who was a sophomore and a second-team second All-League second all player that was a sophomore. They were best two players. Both ended up coming to me at some point in the next two years saying, coach, I'm going to focus on football. One was a, a, a lineman and one was a quarterback. And you know, I did what any father would do. And I supported him. I gave him a big hug, told him I loved him. I said, good luck. Go do it. Um, but you lose your best two players when they're sophomores you know it's going to be hard but as a coach that's okay those kids both play division one football and uh, I'm certainly not going to stand in their way and I I, you know I follow their careers those guys they they, they, you know they did the graduate December of their senior year thing they both came back with their graduation gowns on to say hello to me uh, in school one day so it was like you know Th- that's okay if they choose another sport. You just got to be just like any father would be and just support them and love them.
2: So coach, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the offensive side of the basketball. I've had the opportunity to watch your teams play a couple of times during your regular season the past few years. And a couple of weekends ago, as we alluded to earlier, I was able to watch all four of your games at Midwest Live. And every game I've watched of yours, I can count on one hand the number of bad shots I felt your team has taken offensively your teams are fundamental they're disciplined they always seem to take a high percentage shot each possession how do you go about teaching your team the importance of shot selection and getting everyone to buy into the idea of taking a high percentage
0: shot each possession that's one of the most important things we do because if if the other if you're playing somebody that's better than you and you're taking the same shots you're gonna lose because they're better than you they're you're taking the same shots they're gonna make more of the you know uh, of those shots so you're going to have to do some things to sway that advantage. So you want to maybe take more shots than them, which means turn it over less or potentially rebound better, get more steals, get more shots, but then you got to get better shots. So, you know, the idea of taking care of the basketball and, and shot selection are incredibly important if you're trying to pull off that big upset and truly reach your, your potential, but that's a delicate thing. Cause the last thing you want a shooter to do is to be thinking, man, is this good, a good shot or not while they're shooting, you know, a, a good shooter needs to feel like I'm, I have a free reign to shoot it. And uh, when I'm open. Uh, so there's a process there. I, I think there's some salesmanship there. I think once you get that sell, it's part of your culture. Kids know that we're only taking good shots. And they'll police themselves somewhat. You know, we're gonna if a kid takes a, a maybe a selfish shot, w- which is different than a bad shot necessarily. We're gonna address that. You know, not an embarrassing way, but you know, w- we we can get a better shot than that. You know, if a kid's if a kid's having a cold night. Maybe it's a three-point shooter just can't make a three today. Find a different shot. Don't keep shooting threes. get an easy one to get the lid off of it. You know, those are things you work with your kids and teach your kids. And, and then you know like this past year, you know we were ranked in the top 12th in, in the state on two point field goal percentage and three point field goal percentage. And I'm not saying because that's because we have some of the best shooters in Ohio. We had kids that refused to take a bad shot and they consistently, passed up good shots for better shots so as a coach you reward the passer you get your players to award passers during the flow of a game or a practice and you feed that and these kids this particularly this past year they were just a joy to watch because we had four very good basketball players who didn't care who scored on a given night you know we got one guy get 20 points one game and two the next and they wouldn't bat an eye um so that's, you know, that's a complicated thing because you want to deal with, you know, shooting confidence. But kids have to earn a shot. I mean, a good shot for one kid is not the same as a good shot for another. You don't want everybody shooting threes if they can't shoot threes. Uh, I love the line when a kid says, hey, coach, but I was open. Yeah, that's because their coach knows what I know. You can't make that shot. Yeah, sometimes there's a reason you're open, right? <laughs>
3: exactly. So, Coach, uh, we were talking with you a little bit prior to this podcast. You had shared a couple of unique game night events, some ideas that you've you've had through the years, such as a Valentine's night game, military appreciation night, coaches versus cancer games, the list goes on. Can you talk us through what you did on those different occasions? Because I'm sure we have some listeners tuning in to this podcast that might be interested in doing something like this for their own teams.
0: Yeah, I heard a s- saying quite a few years back that the saying went something to the effect of uh, a coach spends the first half of his career... Trying to be successful, and the second half of his career, career trying to be significant, and that hit me. You know, significant means life impacting. But I, I want to, but the first thing I want to say, teaching a young kid how to be successful may be the most impactful thing you can do with a student athlete, because the recipe, the blueprint, to use your phrase earlier in, in our in our conversation here, the blueprint for success in athletics is no different than it is in any area of your life once you leave school in the business world, uh, in your family life. Success is kind of a universal concept. You know, working hard, paying attention to details, the little things matter, don't cut corners. Those are those are keys for life. I remember a brother played at the University of Florida and he said, I learned and he's in, he 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 was in real estate at the time, and ended up selling cars. He goes, I I learned more about how to be a good person in the business field from my coach than I did any professor I had. So teaching someone to be successful is indeed significant. But the other things you mentioned are way, I think we all have a challenge to to impact our, our kids' lives in other ways than just basketball. Um, so some of those things you mentioned are those, like, we you know, we did the, you mentioned the Valentine's Day thing. We, we haven't done that every year, probably years that it, it slips by me, but if we have a home game that falls on a Valentine's Day, we will often, there's always some organization selling carnations at school that day, right? All right, National Honor Society, the student council, somebody sells. So we'll buy a bunch of carnations. We'll have every player on both teams. We'll, we'll call the, I'll call the other coach, hey, we're doing this. So at the end of warm-up, we give all these kids carnations. They just run up in their stands and give their mom a flower and a big hug, and they come back down and we play ball. You know, the tricky thing is we somehow make sure all the parents are in the gym when that happens. But, <laughs> but that's something I think is a nice touch because these you know these moms do a lot. They you know they do team meals for us and things like that. So that's kind of a and then the fact that we involve the other team in members has been good too. This the special one for me was um, was the military appreciation night. You know the OSAA uh, this year kind of pushed that for everybody. We did it a, really a couple years back. To me. That was on my bucket list. You know, before I retired, I wanted to honor the kids that played basketball for me that joined the military. I want them A, them, to know how much we appreciate what they did. And I want my current players to look out there. Hey, see those dudes right there, they played hoops on this same gym and they put their life on the line for their country. And I want that to be impactful. Those dudes were just like me and went out and risked it all. You know, I talk a lot about toughness with my teams. You know, those guys that join the military, they have more toughness than I will ever know. This year, we honored Purple Star families, which are kids who have a family that has a member in the military and the challenges that that presents for a high school student. We, so we honored those people this year. But that was kind of, a, a, a you know, I guess a burden, particularly with those guys um that served. I wanted to sh- honor them, and those kids came back from all over the country. We had 100% of them come back to be a part of that night. That was very special to me. Uh, coaches versus cancer was something we did. That's something I wanted to do for a long time. And so a couple of years back, I said, Hey, we're going to do it this year. You know, it's, I want to get this done. And lo and behold, that spring, the spring before, um, this young man starts showing up to open gyms, and he's struggling to you know get by. He's a young man that had just been cleared. To participate in sports from cancer, he 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 was struggling with strength and you know being weak, having gone through all the cancer treatments that you go through. The young man made made our our, our JV basketball team, and so we kind of it made that night more special for us. We also kind of recognized a parent of one of our basketball alumni who had a son that played basketball for me and a daughter that played in the girls basketball program. And the Akron Beacon Journal, did a nice write up about both of those people to set off that that event for us. But some cool things happen, you know, those typical cancer events. You fill out, you've seen them on TV, they fill out a I stand for, and you put somebody's name on it, cancer survivor, maybe a, a relative you lost to cancer. So we did that. We had all the team players, stand, both teams, arm in arm, stand out there holding coaches, stand up there, and everyone that stands, hold, hold these up. Steven Mihalik from Brecksville, he did this. He co he did that with us. And this year it was, uh, I believe it was Nodonia that did that with us. And this was a great idea. He had the kids right on that I stand for, write a personal note to the person that was fighting cancer, and they mailed it to them as a special. And he said some of the feedback he got back put him in tears. He said that that, that may have been one of the most significant things they did there. You know, we do an MLK Day thing we started doing here recently. On if we have a Tuesday home game right after MLK Day, we'll. We'll have special T-shirts. We'll, have a, we'll do an uh, auto-visual presentation of, of MLK and honor him that way. And typically, the, the money we raise, you know, a lot of schools, we do halftime shots and 50-50s. Every one of these nights, the money goes back into those causes, whether it's coaches versus cancer, we have a DEI scholarship on MLK Day. We'll, we'll contribute to that as well. The last thing we do is I, I'm i a big believer in legacy. And that's, hopefully that's kind of dripped through my conversation here. Legacy means you living up to the, the those that have come before you, living up to the standards of those that have come before you and leaving a legacy for those that follow. And I try to incorporate that in many ways. We had an alumni night this year where we invited all the alumni back and we did a special Hall of Fame all the people, basketball players and hall of fame thing. We gathered afterwards every year. We do a Christmas alumni open gym. Cause that's typically when people come back in time is the holidays and we'll actually cut our practice in half. And, and we just have an open gym. Alumni, my kids will play the alumni kids will play it. And we have food and drink afterwards. So, you know, pizza, well, pizza come in and drink and the kids will tell stories and there's a story, I'll, I'll, I'll put this with one of my favorite stories. And I hope I don't cry here, but, um, we had a young man that we honored at a military appreciation night, and uh, I—I—I'll I'd, I'd use his—I'll use his name, Kevin Shays. His name, and um, and he'd be the first to admit that there were times he was a challenge to coach. And I used to joke with him after he graduated, "Hey, you're the guy that started all this gray here. and he would laugh. And he went off to college, and he—he he, he struggled in college, with it. and then finally, and then he got it together, and he—he's on the Oderbine team that wins the national championship. He was one of the two best players on that team. God, and he writes me this beautiful letter. I still have it. After he graduated, Coach, you tried to give discipline to a man that sorely needed it. So that touched me. He joins the military and he's fresh off the battlefields of Iraq. And he comes to this this alumni open gym and he asks to speak to the team. And he gets up there and our practice jerseys has one phrase on it since the first day I, I became a coach. It says, "Get it done." That's a phrase Coach Patterson used to say. It's "Get it done." No excuses. Whatever it takes, just get it done. And he he tells a story about going to Iraq and he says this, he got, I thought about stoke basketball every morning in Iraq. I'd get up, it didn't matter how dirty, grungy, tired, sore I was. I'd wake up and I'd say, We're gonna get it done or someone might die. And uh I started bawling and uh There's a guy that butted heads with me years later, realizing that changed his life and maybe saved some lives on that battlefield. But you just should never know when a seed you plant in young men. Uh, Now this guy's probably the president of my fan club and I'm the president of his fan club, but um, just a great story that, that how athletics can impact kids' lives even years later.
2: Coach, that's fantastic. Before we move on, um, I want to talk a little bit about community service and the outreach work that your teams have done over the years to give back to the Stowe community. And I, I want to talk about two of them. The first being your Adopt-A-Team program, and the second being your parent-child basketball camps. Two ideas that I think are just fantastic, uh, that I think our listeners would want to hear about and maybe implement in their own program.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm going to interject with a couple more there that are pretty impactful for me. We're involved with an organization in Akron. And I say that now, it's been a few years because COVID shut it down like a couple years earlier, and we had a big game on that day, so we didn't do it this year. Uh, but for years now, we went to a place called Open End Ministries. It's like a food bank, um, medical clinic for the needy. It started off, the first year we did it, we did like a, what, what's, what's the thing the OHSA does at the beginning of the year? You can raise money for somebody. Foundation game. We did it as a foundation, and we raised money, and people donated cans of food. And I thought, that's a good thing. All right. But how cold is it to put a can of food in a box? All right. So I think my kids need to see need. So the next year we volunteered to work the shelter. And so we would spend five hours there and people adopt families like community members and the families that are needy present uh, like wish lists for Christmas gifts, typically closed. And the food bank is all. so we load cars all day long with Christmas gifts and food for the Navy. And I I make my kids hey, you introduce yourself by name to everybody you meet today. So I want them to put a face on need and have need be impactful. And this is right down the street from us. There were years we actually adopted families and went out and I took my kids into store. We took the shopping list. We bought clothes for those kids, things like that. So I think that's a pretty impactful thing. Hopefully that they have a a sense of service. Another quick one I'll throw in there is years ago, and I had forgotten about it. We had helped build a playground here in Stowe called Skip Playground, Stowe Kids Playground. That's what it stands for. And we, we did, uh, devoted a day out there to help build this playground. And I still remember my job was I had a wood router and I was routing the edges of the, so they wouldn't cut people's hands. And all my kids had different jobs. So anyways, I'm posting on Facebook one day here, years recent, that, that was early 90s, about this open-end ministry work we do. And one of my alumni back on that day goes, hey, do you, I love it how Coach has kids do these community projects. Do you remember when we helped build that playground? And I'd forgotten about it, to be honest with you. And another guy comes, yeah, I do. And he goes, my kids call it the playground daddy built. And the other guy goes, and they both were living out of state. One was Carolina. I think one was in Kentucky. So does mine. So I, I started crying all over again because we not only impacted those kids, their kids now are impacted because my dad helped build that playground. So that was almost like the grandfather effect of, of community services getting passed on to their kids. Adopt a team that you mentioned. I, I, I love that program. That's kind of a, a joint program that my wife and I, my wife was an elementary physical educator at the time, and um, we wanted to connect kids. So there was a teacher that she worked with, uh, Mrs. Kane, of an elementary school class in, in, in her building. Her daughter um, actually was a statistician of mine years earlier and, um, it had babysat our kids. So we come up with the idea, let's do this. We'll call it adopt a team. And what it is, is we just establish pen pals. Every kid in her class pairs up with one of my basketball players and they write letters back and forth to each other. And they answer questions, things like, so I print up a little stationery that has their, my basketball players picture on it and things like that, to kind of make it personal. And, um, when we have team dinners, they'll draw little placemats of basketball scenes and things like that. And my kids love, they think these, ah, oh, they look down. My kids love those. They take them home, they hang them on the wall. So there's all kinds of things like that. And then they will come, the entire class will come to a game and sit behind our bench. In the We didn't do this part of it this year because it's a little harder now with how we're doing basketball games now. But anyways, we used to take down a halftime the JV game we would take my varsity team down and that class down and shoot around with them and have fun playing with them, meet their pen pals, do autographs you know, pictures and things like that. But then i have my kids talk to them about the importance of academics, taking care of your body, health, and uh, and staying off of drugs, things like that. So it's an opportunity to reach them that way. This year, we didn't have a chance to do that, but the, the, those kids, they'll come, they'll have a huge banner about the Go Bulldogs. They'll have personal signs made up with their kids' name on it and holding up the air during the game and cheering them on. We'll take a big group picture after the game. Then after the season, so they've come to our place. After the season, we take a a half a day or a little bit more and go to their school and visit them. Uh, This year, actually, one of our players' parents, Mrs. Timberlake, Nick Timberlake was our shooting guard. She is a a third-grade teacher, so we all went down to her class the last two years. But she has their kids teach my kids how to do the things they're doing in class. We'll do recess together. We'll eat lunch together. And that's just really a blessing. And the blessing to me is after years of doing that is that my kids' hearts have changed. I mean, I don't have to ask them to do things to meet kids. For example, we'll have a youth night. We did this like, well, the third graders play halftime of the JV game. Fifth graders play halftime of the varsity game. So the third graders are playing there. And usually I'll tell them, like, hey, go say something to them, guys. So uh, here I'm talking to my uh, my varsity assistant and the, 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 they're not playing anymore. And I look up, and my, they went over on their own. And they're high-fiving all these third graders and things like that. So they, they kind of have bought into that and understand the impact they can have. A little bit of that legacy concept that I had before. But again, I want my kids to realize they have a responsibility to reach out to them. And the, the last thing you mentioned was the parent-child camp. I picked up that idea from Coach Lonnie Kruger, um, who's a very famous coach. But he was a coach at the University of Florida. And I was down visiting my brother. And he had a, my brother had a friend on staff, was assistant on staff. So I, we went over. And they had a parent-child camp in progress. And they actually, the, I think it was a father-son camp, actually, in progress. And the kids actually, the parent and the kid actually stayed in the dorm together. So it was a real full-blown thing. So I, I got that idea. And again, we don't do that. We're going to do that this year. We haven't done it in a while. It just takes a lot of time. it's usually right before the season starts. But what we, how we organize that is, you um, know, if somebody wants to, you know, a coach wants to send me an email or something like that, I'll be glad to respond and give them some ideas. Um, it's multifaceted. My wife and I are both very passionate about youth sports and the coaches and parents. You know, you've always heard the nightmare stories about coaches and parents in youth sports. We have a very passion about that experience being positive for kids and that parents and coaches are probably the two main indicators for that. And the research tells you why kids get out of sports is because it's not fun. Well, what makes it not fun? Probably parents and coaches. So we'll, we'll do a three hours on, like we'll do, we'll start up camp on a, it's a, a, we'll do it on a day where there's an away football game. So on a Friday we'll come in at six o'clock. And get all the dads and oh we start off as father, son, then father, child, then parent, child. So by the time it was over, any any parent with any kid was fine, which makes sense. Um, but we encourage the parents to stay within their wheelhouse. We don't want to carry anybody out here in a stretcher. But we actually have kids and dads do stations together to learn the fundamentals, All right, There's a grandfather effect here. When you teach a kid at your basketball camps, how to do a skill? They probably forget what you taught them by the time they get home. We're teaching the dad or the mom who's going to work with their son or daughter in a driveway how to teach these for the rest of their lives. So we're educating parents how to better educate their kids how to become better basketball players. So that's that's one part of it. So we'll do stations in a, on a, on a, on Friday. And then we know the parents have limited or we, you know, we're worried parents have limited physical ability. So a lot of times the parents will be the defense to help us run the drill. They don't have to do the the running and things like that. We'll try to taper it to accommodate, you know, the age gap for kids. Then we will take the parents out the last hour and just have a a, a, a chat. Like we brought a professor in, actually, as a professor, my wife and I had to talk about what does the research say about parent coach youth relationships and youth sports, and it's very eye opening. So we'll have that conversation, open dialogue, and then the next day we'll do kind of the same thing again. We'll have some games and competitions and things like that more than the second day. But the second breakout session we'll do the same thing, but it'll be a parent panel. So I'll kind of hand pick some parents that have had sons and daughters. Hopefully they've done multiple sports because I know when my kids were little, I literally went to parents of my basketball team and said, uh, give me your notes because your kid's a great kid. I want my kid to grow up to be like your kid. So I tried to bring those parents in there that have a good perspective on there. And we hand those parents like an information. Again, this was a lot of a lot of this was like pre-internet days. An information packets with research on youth sports parenting and, and guidelines to youth sport experience and things like that. Terry Pluto, who now writes for the uh, uh, Cleveland Plain Dealer, was writing for the Akron Beacon Journal at this time. And they sent him over to cover this. And he kind of even kind of admitted, I don't know what I'm doing here for. But we talked ahead of it a little bit. It ended up being the lead article on the top of the first page of the sports page about mixed messages. What messages are we sending to our kids? So that's been pretty impactful for me. And the other thing I want to tell parents is, How many times does a parent say to their kid how to do something? And they say, oh, dad, oh, mom. Well, now they can say, oh, remember when Coach Smith said to do this at camp? So it gives them that common point of reference. So it's not just dad telling this, it's Coach Smith from camp that's telling you how to do this. So empowering mom or dad to have that leverage as well. So, Coach, now we'd like to transition to a segment that we
3: call Triple Threats. We're going to give you three topics and let you share your thoughts, ideas, experiences, maybe just the first thing that comes to mind. Topic number one,
0: the shot clock. Are you for it or against it and why? That's a funny question because except for those years in the mid-90s when we averaged 90 points a game, typically we play low-scoring games. So everyone thinks we slow games down. But our games are slow because of our defense. We're hard to score off quickly. If you want to take a quick shot against us, it's probably not going to be a very good shot. So, I'm for the shot clock because that's going to give you less time to score against us. Coach number
2: 2, the recent rule change to free throws and the resetting of team fouls at the end of each quarter. Do you like the change and how do you see it having an impact on your team?
0: I'm more of a I'm I'm, I'm curious to see how it plays out. I'm not going to go crazy one way or another on this i, I i'm just curious to see how it, it plays out it certainly change changes the dynamic the resetting changes the dynamic end of game situations change so I, i'm interested to see how that plays out i i welcome that change but we'll see how that plays out it's interesting. Remember, remember back when they changed almost consecutive years they changed free throw lanes remember they said you couldn't line up in the free throw spot right next to the free throw shooter because you were being too physical remember that rule they, you were not and then they, like the year later they moved everybody back so you had to be in that spot. So they make rule changes sometimes like, like you know then they con- contradict each other. So I'm not sure how that's gonna play out, but I'm, I certainly welcome change for change sake sometimes. It won't, I don't think it'll dramatically increase the, 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 the flow of a game that much to be honest with you.
3: Okay, number three scenario here for you. Your team's up three. You're on defense with seven seconds left. Do you foul or do you play it out?
0: I'm a play it out guy. Um, you play great defense. Don't try to foul. Get a rebound. Things like that. Although that's that that can win you a game. That can lose you a game. You know, we had a situation this year where we had a you know we we lost two games in a regular season, and one of them a kid hits a three to put it into a third overtime. And uh, had we fouled, we it may have been a different outcome. I, that's it's gonna. That would be. It's hard for me. It's funny. Jim McDonald. when I worked for him at this. He was a purist, a technician of the game. Jim McDonald said, "I'm. You know, people foul at the end of the game. Get back. I am, fouling's illegal. I am not telling my players to do something that's against the rules." He was that much of a purist about it. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I see, I see the pros and the cons. But I guess I'm stubborn. I, I am. I'm not following. I just want my guys to play good defense. But the, the, but the, here's the point. Here's probably the ultimate point is whatever you're going to do, make sure your kids know. Because that that scenario there, we were shooting two free throws, and we made the first, missed the second. So it wasn't like we could call a timeout and set it up, you know, because we'd missed the second free throw. If we made it, we're up four. We're down, you know, so if, if I wanted a foul, I'd, you know, you better make sure if that was my plan that we know that and we've practiced that and things like that. You need to always practice those special situations like that.
2: So coach, we got one more question for you, but before we get to that, thank you for coming on the show tonight, spending some time with us on the podcast. I have just a tremendous amount of respect for you and what you've been able to do. Uh, This has been so good. And and, and to be quite honest, we're probably going to have to bring you on again because I feel like there's just so much more that you have to share with our listeners that we weren't able to get to um, but if you don't mind, I'm going to put your contact information in the show notes. So if people want to contact you, they can reach out to you, but really appreciate you coming on tonight.
0: Thank you. It's my, it's a, a blessing to be here. You know, this coaching profession, it hasn't gotten any easier. Uh, we're a real fraternity. You know, I, I just brought a guy on staff, Henry Cobb, who was a head coach at Cuyahoga Falls when they were way back when I first got here and he first got to the same and that we were real rivals. They were really good. That's when they had Eggers and Hackham and all those guys. When we went to, they were second place in the league. Um, the year we went to Columbus, we were third. We win um, the regional. We beat St. Joe's. Ironically, the, the St. Joe's that beat us at Riverside in years one and three, at my year two at so, we beat them to get to the final four. Henry calls me and says, Dave, I'll drive to Dayton to go scout your next opponent. Here's your arch rival. We truly are a profession that needs to care and take care of each other. You can be competitive as you want on game night. When it's over, man, we're best friends and we need to support each other because this this job can, can be difficult.
2: So coach, in your 38 years as a head coach, you have won close to 650 games. 15 league titles, 28 sectional titles, 7 district championships, and 2 regional championships. You and your teams have had the opportunity to play on the biggest stage in Ohio high school basketball twice. I think it's safe to say that you've forgotten way more than most of us will ever know about the game. A lot of people when they reach the top of their profession they don't remain at the top very long because they forgot what it took to get them there. That's not you though. In my opinion the quote be a learn-it-all, not a know-it-all is you in a nutshell. You know, I, I've observed you at the clinic that we have each fall the past couple years. And after almost every speaker, you go up and you interact with that individual. And you're asking questions about what they talked about. Or you're intrigued by a concept that they brought up. And you're always trying to learn and better yourself as a coach. That mentality, I feel, is missing from a lot of coaches in our profession today and it's concerning. You no, know, I was talking to a, a former NBA uh, assistant coach a couple of weeks back who was talking about just young coaches in general and, and this Twitter Instagram culture that we're in right now where, you know, coaches don't want to go to clinics. They don't necessarily Want to watch the videos anymore? They don't necessarily even want to watch a whole basketball game. They just want to see those plays on Twitter or those plays on Instagram and implement them without seeing them in the whole context of a game. And I guess you're a seasoned coach, a, a veteran coach. What advice would you give to young coaches as they're looking to grow in this profession?
0: Wow, a lot, a lot there. My mind's going a hundred different directions with that right now. You know, for, for me you you've mentioned um i'll start with coach patterson coach patterson passed a a couple years ago now and we remained close over the years after i graduated his last years we probably talked once a month still Um, my daughter went to taylor so i got to reconnect with him and i'm telling you every i'm gonna start crying here every phone call we had at least once if not three or four times david You got to keep doing what you're doing. Your young men need what you have to offer them. need to keep doing what you're doing. They're not getting it anywhere else. And he's the man that made me realize my calling and follow my calling. And it is just that. The day I walk off the court for the last time will be hard for me. That's kind of who I am. You've mentioned, you know, I've been blessed to have great kids. And like you mentioned, we've had some great success by traditional standards. My hope and prayer is, my true measure of success is the young young men that we put out in the community, in their lives, and their kids' lives. That's that's the impact coaches need to have. So it's it's you know for my profession, for you know my staying at Stowe this long, you know Stowe's been a great place for me. I, I, it's a great place for me to go to school. Got a great education here. Did the same for my kids. My kids had great experience here. My wife enjoyed teaching here. It's an easy place to stay, hard place to leave. You know, I, I've turned on a few opportunities to leave, just you know, because I wanted to raise my kids behind the stove bench, and I've been able to do that. I stay in coaching, and and, and I challenge young people that coach to impact lives. That that's what keeps me in coaching. I, I'm not trying to get to some number of wins. I see what this done as impactful, significant, and and I think as young coaches, yes, teach your kids how to be successful. That is important. Uh, but impact their lives, find other ways to do that and develop those lifelong relationships. But you got to you got to work at this. Like you said, man, you got to you got to work. At it. And it, I'll be honest, it's easier now to learn as much as technology can be a distraction. It's a, certainly a great tool. I mean, huddle, for example, is uh, the greatest blessing and the greatest curse. It's a blessing because you get 10 games on your next tournament opponent. The The curse is you're going to watch all 10 of them. <laughs> you know i put probably more time in it now than i have ever done i i want to do this well and i want to give our kids every opportunity to succeed and, you, and again you, you hope you impact so do it well stay focused on, on on why you got into this and i hope it wasn't just to win some games uh you gotta love the game of basketball but it's more important that you love your
1: kids Thanks for listening to Holding Court, presented by the Ohio High School Basketball Coaches Association. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. In the meantime, keep up with us on Twitter and Facebook at Ohio BK Coaches, on Instagram at OHSBCA1947, and online at www.oh.nhsbca.org. Until next time.